So today, we're still in the time of the judges, but we're not in the book of judges. You remember that there was a 400-year period after Canaan was settled by the uh, Israelites when they came back from Egypt, that they didn't have a king. They were ruled by judges, and they had this sad cycle of getting away from God and doing whatever they wanted, and then crying out to him and being raised up. But at any rate, one of the books of the Bible that covers part of the period of the judges is the book of Ruth. So it was written around 3,200 years ago, 1200 B.C., we don't know for sure who wrote it, maybe the prophet Samuel. And the subject is a woman who was not even born a Jew. It was written in Hebrew. And so we are now some 125 or 140, 50 years into the period of the judges. And we're in this cycle of fall away from God and come back to him. And, uh, it's been 700 years since Abraham was called by God. Now, you think in our own history, how long ago 700 years was? That's what, 1300 AD? There's barely even anything that would be remotely recognizable as an English language. And none of the Europeans have yet sailed to the New World. A lot of things were very, very different that long ago. Moses has been dead for 154, or excuse me, that should be years. And so here we are in the book of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab, the man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name, Naomi, and the names of his two sons, Malan and Killian. His wife must have been a beautiful person. Her name was Pleasant, and she acted pleasant. She was the world's most wonderful mother-in-law. And her husband's name was My God is King. These were God-fearing people, but their two sons were not very well, apparently. In fact, they were named sickness and failing or pining. So maybe they just were kind of like some of these children that are always sick. Maybe they looked pale. Maybe they weren't very um, strong constitution. Maybe they were thin. Maybe they were slow to reach their landmarks. Maybe they crawled late and walked late. I don't know, but uh, they went to Moab and lived there. So let me remind you where Moab is. If you look on the map, you can see it in the upper right-hand corner, just to the right or to the east of the Dead Sea. And uh, if that's not ringing any bells for you, we certainly find Moab in the Torah. Uh, the Moabites were the descendants of Abraham's nephew, Lot. Maybe you recall that after he left Sodom and Gomorrah before it was judged, he ended up alone with his daughters living in a cave. His daughters resigned themselves to never marrying. They got him drunk on successive nights. He impregnated them and their sons, Moab and Ammon, uh, became the heads of some enemies of Israel. So 
Moab comes from a Hebrew word that sounds like from father. So it was this sad kind of gross start to this people that were always at war with Israel. And in fact, in Deuteronomy, Moses had asked their permission to pass through there on their way to the land of Canaan, and they told him no. And uh, there was a time when their king hired a prophet named Balaam, if you remember the story of the talking donkey in the Old Testament, uh, hired a prophet to curse them. And uh, he was unsuccessful, but still the Lord had said in the Torah, don't ever have anything to do with the Moabites and they're not allowed in, in uh, the congregation of the people for 10 generations. And they had to go around the long way to get to Canaan uh, in order to go around Moab. So bottom line, where were we in our story before that rabbit trail? This nice family from Bethlehem finds themselves in a time of famine and they don't know where to go. So there's food in Moab and so they travel east and they go to Moab. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. Boy, that's sure easy to say in one sentence, but that's really a long and painful and sad trek, isn't it? They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. After they'd lived there about 10 years, both Malin and Killian died, and Naomi was left without her two sons, and her husband. Now, Ruth means compassionate friend, but my, what a lot of setbacks and a sad decade. First, they're impoverished, probably, and at least stressed by not having anything to eat. And so they have to leave their friends and their country and go to a place that worships uh, whatever kind of God, but not the God of Israel. And then the boys marry, but they're not well. And then all three of those men die. And here she is getting up in years, and she's a widow and childless. Oh, my goodness, the pain of it all. So you know the story. She tries to talk her daughters-in-law into going with her to Bethlehem, and they start out going. She wants to go home. She's heard that the famine has passed. My goodness, it's been more than 10 years it's rained, they're having crops again, and so they set out. And then it occurs to her on second thought that that's really kind of selfish. Naomi Pleasant is a beautiful, wonderful person. And although she would have loved to have their companionship, she just can't bring herself to ask these girls to resign themselves to living in a foreign country. And so she says, you all, you need to go back home to your parents and try to remarry and you don't want to come with me. There's not any future here with me. And they all cried and uh, hugged each other. And then Orpa listened and she went back to her former home. This particular drawing was done in 1795 by William Blake. And the name of it is Naomi in treating Ruth because after Orpah turns and goes back home, Ruth says that famous commitment paragraph that is used so often in weddings that I'm sure you're familiar with, 
And she makes seven important statements that I want to focus on today. She says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. And then statement number one, where you go, I will go. Number two, where you stay, I will stay. Number three, your people will be my people. Number four, your God, my God. Number five, where you die, I will die. Number six, and there will I be buried. Number seven, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. In other words, she had made up her mind and you're not going to change it. And so none of this being kind and thoughtful and just saying, oh, no, you need to remarry, go back home. She wasn't going to listen. She had already decided that she was going to stay with this beautiful, wonderful woman that she loved and that she was going to call herself by the name follower of God. She was going to basically be a convert to Judaism. And so the two women go on together until they reach Bethlehem. And when they get there, people haven't seen them in over a decade. They haven't seen Naomi. And they're saying, wow, look at her. She looks like she's really aged. Have you ever seen someone? Maybe you've even just noticed U.S. presidents when they've been in office for a while and you compare their picture, especially if they were in office for eight years to how it was when they started. That's such a hard, stressful job. You look at them and you think, my goodness, they have really accelerated the aging process. Well, here's this woman who's been through famine and she's a widow and she's lost both of her sons and she's traveling with another single woman, you know, back to her country. And she doesn't look too much like a spring chicken anymore. And when they call her pleasant, she says, don't call me that anymore. The Lord's made my life very bitter. So call me bitter. Call me Mara. And she says, I went away full, but the Lord's brought me back empty. So um, the barley harvest is beginning and they are able to take possession of their former home and land. They really don't have anything much to live on. And Ruth is aware somehow of what the Torah says about how it's permissible to go behind the harvesters and pick up what they drop that was called gleaning. And so she's young and able-bodied and she tells her uh, mother-in-law that that's what she is going to do. And you know that she finds herself in the field of a distant relative named Boaz and he inquires about this beautiful young woman when he sees her gathering. And he even tells his workers, hey, you accidentally, in quotes, drop a little extra and let her pick that up. And he tells the men, don't harass her. Leave her alone. No wolf whistles, no inappropriate comments. Leave her alone. And uh, then he actually approaches her. And he says, my daughter, listen to me. And by the way, this painting was done in 1535 or so by a Dutchman named John von Squirrel. It's called Ruth and Naomi in the field of Boaz. And uh, Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go glean in another field. Don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I've told the men not to touch you. 
And whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. So he is letting her have the benefits of an employee, and she's just there to pick up the scraps, like it says that poor people can do in the law. And he said, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people you didn't know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Well, this goes on for several months through various harvests because Boaz is a well-to-do man, and it's not just the barley harvest, but we have some other grains that are coming ready to harvest. And so she is able to make a living, and her mother-in-law, Naomi, now called Bitter, starts thinking about this girl's future, and she knows what the law has to say about if your husband dies, then you may marry a near kinsman who is single, and then children can be raised up in the dead man's memory. And she's thinking about how Boaz is related to them and how maybe it would be possible for Ruth to marry Boaz. He's an older man, but he's never married. And so one day she brings this up to her. Let's see, it should be the previous slide. My daughter, shouldn't I try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? And she brings up the idea of Ruth marrying Boaz, and she gives her this idea about Here's what I want you to do. And this was a, an awkward and difficult thing that took a lot of, of uh, assertiveness to do. But she tells her, you know, tonight he's going to be out on the threshing floor because they're winnowing barley. And so uh, make yourself look nice. Put on your best. Go to the threshing floor. Wait till he's finished eating and drinking and lies down because she kind of knew his habits, and she knew that during this time of year, instead of the rich man going home to his house, where he probably had servants waiting on him, that he would just sleep at the winnowing floor. Maybe he considered himself a sort of security guard or something. But she says, when he falls asleep, then you go and you uncover his feet and lie down there, and he'll tell you what to do. How strange. It didn't just sound strange when we read it, but it sounded a little bit difficult to her too. And yet you remember what she had said, and we're going to focus again on those seven statements of commitment. She'd said, I'll go where you want me to go and stay where you stay. And so she says, I'll do whatever you say. And she carries out the plan. And so he wakes up suddenly in the middle of the night, and in the shadows, he realizes that there's a human being at his feet, and it probably scares him a little, certainly startles him, and he says, who are you? And she says, I am Ruth. And then she tells him her plan, uh, uh, spread your skirt over me, for I am a near kinsman. In other words, I am asking you to do what the law requires for widows uh, in marrying a relative. Well, that really impressed him. He saw that as her actually doing what she could to provide for Naomi. And he says, this kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. 
You're really taking care of your beloved mother-in-law. You haven't run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And I'm sure she could have because she was apparently very lovely. Now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I'll do what you ask. And so she hurries home and she tells her mother-in-law at the break of day, you're not going to believe what happened. I did sneak in there. He did fall asleep. He wakes up in the middle of the night. We have this conversation. Oh, and by the way, he sends her home with her whole mantle or shawl completely filled with grain. Look what he gave me. He said he's going to check on it. There's one other guy that's closer kin to us than him, and he has to take care of that business. That required going to the city gate and having a public meeting where the other man relinquishes his right to be considered first to marry Ruth. And there's an exchange of this shoe and the whole thing that the law says. You can see that I am pushing through pretty quickly this short book that only has four chapters. Bottom line, he did marry her. She became his wife, it says, and he went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Well, when the baby was born, her mother-in-law who lives with them is absolutely overjoyed. And they notice how the mother-in-law is the babysitter and oh, she's enjoying that little boy. And the people that are Naomi's friends are saying, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer, which is a type of Christ and very beautiful in itself. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Look at this beautiful painting. It's called Ruth, Naomi, and Obed. That's what they named him, Obed. It was done by a man named Simeon Solomon in the 1800s. In Ruth 4.16, it says, Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and cared for him. And uh, the women living there said, Naomi has a son. Isn't that beautiful? Naomi has a son. Well, Naomi had two sons and they died, but the Lord has so beautifully restored to her. This little boy, he's really not even biologically related to her. This was her daughter-in-law's second marriage, except just a little bit through the tribe of Judah, I suppose. He's a little bit kin to her father uh, or to her husband. And uh, here's the neat thing. He became, you know, the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of King David. So he was in the direct lineage of Jesus Christ. And you can read this in the genealogy in Matthew, right there before the Christmas story. You're going down from all the uh, descendants of Abraham and you come down to Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. See, we're going to list this woman who was from the enemies of Israel from Moab, and then Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Beautiful story. Sure, ends nice, but what is it that we were going to focus on? Let's see. This all came about because Ruth decided to hitch her wagon to the people of God, and she made a statement of commitment that had seven parts, 
And you can divide those seven things into three main categories. First, she said, oh, and I like this painting too. Isn't that beautiful? There's Orpa getting ready to leave. And there's old Naomi. And there's Ruth saying, I will not leave you. Now, let me remind you what she said. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. And uh, let me see, why were we focusing on this again? Just because we wanted to have some basic knowledge of Bible history or because it's relevant to Christians today? It's an example for us today. Well, is God calling us to commit completely to our mothers-in-law? No, this is a type, not just of commitment in marriage, but of what it would take to be completely committed as a follower of Christ to the Lord for life. And so I want us to look at this part one here where she says, I'll go where you go and I'll stay where you stay. So the I will follow, that kind of reminds me of what the Lord said before he ascended to heaven to Peter. You remember at the end of the book of John, after Peter was so embarrassed, he had denied Christ right before the crucifixion and then the rooster crowed and he went out and wept bitterly. And so there was this unfinished business after Jesus rose from the dead and he was appearing periodically to the disciples for a number of days, this unfinished business between him and Peter. And he needed to let Peter know that grace could cover this mistake if Peter was determined from now on to serve him. And he says to Peter, feed my sheep. Remember how he said that three times? And then he tells him something really hard. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. Well, this was a prophecy about how he would be martyred. And you know that we are aware from church history that he was crucified upside down. Stretch, stretch out your hands and get led where you don't want to go. Peter said this, or Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me, follow me. So what was that again? Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. That's what Ruth said to Naomi. And that's what Jesus was basically asking of Peter, who was the head of the church of his day. And so we also remember that he said in Luke 9, 23, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So what does that really mean, follow me? What does it mean to you if you're set in your career or if you're long retired or if uh, you're not planning to move to a foreign country and you know that God has not called you to foreign missions you're not even going to leave Owasso. What does this follow me? Well, what if he asks you to apologize to someone? Would you follow him? What if he asks you to volunteer in a new way at the church? 
What if he asked you to do something for your health, lose weight or something? What if he asked you to go with your spouse to counseling or to witness at work or to read the Bible daily? Would you follow him? You know, when you get down to the nitty gritty details of it, it's not as glamorous as this, I will follow you wherever you go. Theoretically, I have a good attitude so that if you had called me to Africa, I bet I would have gone. No, he's saying to you in your spirit today, I want you to go and make things right with that person that you uh, got kind of snippy with a couple days ago. That's following Christ. And it can be kind of difficult. And remember, following is not just going when he goes, but it's staying when he stays. You remember the cloud by day and the fire by night that led the Israelites around in the wilderness? It would get up and go sometimes, and sometimes it would just stay over the tent tabernacle in the wilderness, and they would camp, and they'd get up and look, and if it wasn't going, they weren't going. So what do you think that means, stay with you? Do you remember when Paul had some sort of a problem in his flesh that he asked for healing from? He related later in 2 Corinthians 12, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh. People have speculated about this. Maybe it was bad eyesight. Who knows what it was? A messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. And that's why for Christ's sake, I delight in Ooh, lots of bad things to hang around for. Weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, difficulties. For when I'm weak, I'm strong. So what if instead of the Lord saying to you, go and do this, that, or the other thing, he's saying to you, yeah, I know your marriage isn't so great, but I'm asking you to stay married. I'm asking you to stay in your current job, even though it's difficult for you right now. I'm asking you to stay in that church that has some troubles. I'm asking you to stay in this trial you have for a while. That's the kind of not very glamorous again, nitty gritty, tire hits the road, real Christian living that goes with what Ruth said. You know, when she said, I'll go with you and I'll stay with you, she didn't really know at the time that that meant going out in the field like she was a 25-year-old man and working in the back-breaking sun all day, all leaned over a bunch of stickery plants and bugs everywhere and sweat pouring, going and staying where he leads, where he leads me, I will follow, that's hard to do. But that was the first part of this beautiful seven-statement, three-part commitment that she made. Then the next part was, your people will be my people and your God, my God. So I'm going to call this part two, I will love. And this I will love starts out reminding us of what Jesus said in Mark 12, hear O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one that comes right out of Torah. 
And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment greater than these. Okay, so your people shall be my people. That was a big deal for a Moabite, an enemy of Israel, to say, okay, I'm turning my back on the Moabites, and it's your people. I'm going to embrace them. I don't even know them, and I may have some biases against them, actually, because they serve different gods and their customs are a little bit different. But your people will be my people. So that might mean that we recognize the people in the body of Christ that maybe we have trouble with sometimes. Maybe for you, are there some biases against people of other races? Or are there people in this church that you know they have a different political view from you and when they say stuff or you see it on Facebook or you saw an Instagram post, it just goes all over you and it just makes your, your stomach clench and every time you think about them, you just go, oh, don't like them. Well, that reminds me of 1 John 4, 19 through 21. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God and yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever doesn't love their brother or sister whom they've seen can't love God whom they've not seen. And he's given us this command. Anybody who loves God must also love his brother or sister. So part two was embrace God and embrace his people. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. And then we come to the third main part, the three last things that Ruth said she said, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Dying, hmm, where you die, I will die. Well, why was that necessary? I mean, if Naomi's dead, why don't you just go and make whatever kind of life you would like to make, Ruth? Or is this symbolic of how the Lord is calling us to mimic the Lord as he was crucified, we also, like Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ. And Paul told the Corinthians, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. So death is separation. Ultimately, it's separation. So it's separation from the world, separation from sin, separation from old attitudes, we saw Jesus model this in the Gospels. When he lived here in physical bodily form, he died. Finally, ultimately, he completely died on the cross, breathed his last and gave up the ghost. And so in the same way, we are asked to put to death our flesh. And then we're also asked to be buried. What? Yeah, baptism. Why do you bury something? Well, because it's over. It's defunct. It's useless. Its time has gone. It has no future. When something passes, bury it and move on. And so when a Christian is so serious about their faith that they don't just go to the altar or say a prayer at their seat in their heart, but they actually go before the people and say, Hey, public, I want you to know today I'm going to be baptized. I'm going to be buried with him. Then this is another step of commitment. You know, one scripture we don't look at too very often, 
because we're kind of worried that people will misunderstand and think that conversion is a matter of things we do than rather the heart. I really like this scripture though, Acts twenty two sixteen. What are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. What? Be baptized and wash your sins away? Are you telling me that physical water does something for the soul? Well, that would be the implication here that when you follow through with a symbolic act that shows that the old is dead, you know, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Old things are passed away kind of sounds like burial to me. Then I think it's time for us to ask ourselves. I mean, there are a lot of Christians in our congregations that have never actually followed through with water baptism. Not okay. She said, wherever you die, I'll die, and then I'll be buried there, just like you. And then finally, the last thing she said was nothing but death is going to separate you and me. In other words, Ruth said to Naomi, I'm talking about for life. I don't just mean I'll follow you or stay where you stay or go where you go for a period of months or maybe for 10 years or till I'm sick or something. This is forever until I'm as dead as a doornail. I am following you. And that reminds me of what Paul says. When he got to the end of his life, he looked back and said, I fought a good fight, finished the race, kept the faith. And there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Why is that? Oh, because he saw it through. If this podcast has been a blessing to you, please pass it along. 